chapter 24. We're going to start there and go, go from there on these three little words that mean so much to us today. So the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Remember, Luke was a physician uh, in the first century. He was pretty attentive to all the, the details, so he includes a lot of details within his Gospel. So if you are able, would you stand with me? As I read the word of God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes by the power of your Holy Spirit to give us understanding today as we look at your word. See what it says, that it would dwell deep within us, that it would cause us to conform our lives in holiness to your perfect will. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, the section goes all the way through 12. I'm just going to read the first nine verses. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while we were still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all those things to the eleven and to the rest." This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now perhaps you remember those terrible, frightening words when maybe you were in high school, maybe junior high, and and the teacher said, I want you to write a 500-word essay. And you went, 500 words, That's that's like a whole book. Okay, And then you wrote it, and, and maybe you had to do some filler. I can remember one paper in college where um, I started really well, and then I didn't think it was enough, so I started to write more, and then I wrote my conclusion, and he wrote on the first two pages, good, the next three pages, filler, and the last page, good. Uh, I mean, they're, they're not professors for no reason. I mean, he, they knew what they were doing. So you get into college, and then you, you have these uh, larger essays, uh, a friend of mine who was a, a professor up at Vandy, and he told these young, uh, uh, enthusiastic business majors, said, I want a thousand words. I don't want a thousand one, I want a thousand words. Well, they being students at Vanderbilt, turned in five and six thousand words, you know, because they wanted to show the professor how much they knew about this topic. And, and he said... On the papers, I, I always drew the line at 1,000, and, and I stopped reading there. I didn't care what they wrote after that, because I said, give me 1,000 words. He said, we're business. I don't care if it's bullet points, 1,000 words and bullet points. Okay, I want to know the facts. They wanted to tell me the story about the facts. I didn't want that. So you get into further into academia you get, you, you write longer papers. Uh, some of my papers at seminary stopped at 25,000 words. Okay. 
They didn't want to see 25,001. 25,000. Of course, with modern word count, it's not that hard to figure it out. But what if I said, could you give me your story, your history, your biography in a thousand words? Could you do that? I had to write that once for some project uh, as we were training church planters. They were doing it, so I had to do it too. And it's like, uh, a thousand words. Can you stretch your life into a thousand? Or can you condense it into a thousand, okay? What about 500? 500 words. I used to do radio in in Wilmington, and I would do these spots. And you had one minute, and they were one-minute spots, and I could get 200 words in on the radio in 54 seconds because you had a little intro, and then you had the out. So you'd take a breath, and a guy, the light came on, you would record. And you couldn't stop. Because you had to get all the words in, but I could get 200 words in in a minute. What if I asked you to write the 25 most important words you could think of? 25, you only have 25 words, and they have to be enough to change the world. What are you going to write? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 25 words. That's the 25 most important words ever written. Now, let's get down to rug cutting time. I give you three words to change the world. What are they going to be? He is risen. Very good. You're, you're right on it today. This is Easter, but you were right on it, okay? Now, the three little words. Now, we're not talking about that 1950s movie with Fred Astaire and Red Skelton. Three little words. We're not talking about that. We're talking about these words that are enough to change the world or enough to threaten the world. He is risen. You cannot hear those words no matter what you think, no matter how hard your heart is, no matter what your intellectual argument against God is, you cannot hear those words, he is risen, and not think about them, not have any effect in your life. And I'm going to tell you why. It is very clear here. Let me make a case that every human has enough knowledge of God to be afraid of those words. He is risen. Afraid of them. If you still have your Bibles open, we're going to go because Luke tells us very clearly, don't look for him here, he's risen. He's not here. Go back or go forward to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. The gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, he is risen, really makes no sense outside of the reality of the cause of his death and resurrection. Okay, I mean, why would God send his only son into the world to take on the form of a human, the incarnation, for, for no good reason? I mean, if there was no real cause for him to do so. There is a cause, and that cause is called sin, unfortunately. And the gospel doesn't make sense unless... We understand the reality of our sin. If I have no sin to be saved from, then why do I care that Christ came? Why do I care about a resurrection if I don't need it? Apart from God's wrath against sin, the gospel makes no sense. And the gospel is the story of the Lord's gracious redemption to those who do not deserve it. Christ came out of the grave for the likes of me, who didn't, did not deserve it. 
And because he came out of the grave, that means on the day of his return, my body will come out as well. And it will be set for all eternity, raised imperishable. So Paul, in this first chapter of Romans, he's going to make sure we understand how bad the bad news is so that we can appreciate how good the good news is. And that's the tomb is empty. Now, we have all heard, seen, maybe mimicked, okay, because we thought it was cool, but, but we understand now I'm much more mature. Uh, growing up, we, we always mimicked Ernest Angley. Okay? Some of you who knew Ernest, he just was the epitome of the uh, TV preacher. And we, we would college, we would watch him, and we would mimic him. Okay? But the message of sin that he preached and the message of judgment was correct. Okay? We may have heard, mimicked, whatever, but those certainly, the the terribleness of sin and the wonderfulness of the grace of God are certainly taught by Paul and throughout Scripture. And it's essential that we understand this. It is essential that we have a great grasp of this. But unfortunately, most of our culture is uncomfortable with the idea of sin. It's uncomfortable with the idea of defining any personal desire or behavior is evil. The idea of depravity just is totally foreign to most of the world today. Most of the world today. To counteract the reality of our sin in our lives, we just defined it away. We just don't call things sin anymore. We've normalized them. This started way back. I mean, really, the big changes came back in the 70s. Carl Menninger, the psychologist, wrote the book, Whatever Happened to Sin? As he began in his practice to study individuals They had no concept of sin. He writes, sin seems to have disappeared from our collective cultural conscience. Alan Bloom wrote following up back in the 70s from his experiences at the University of Chicago that he found that students that he was teaching did not believe in evil or in sin. They didn't personally know anyone whom they would call evil. And when pressed to find somebody in history that they would call evil, this 1970s, they came up with Hitler and Nixon. Eh? I mean, whatever happened to Stalin or Mao? I mean, Nixon. Uh, more modern writer, Jim Morgan today, writes about our culture today. He writes about our woke culture He says, our woke nation holds up high moral ideas, our deals. We protest and fight for equity and justice and human rights for all. We want a world where every man and woman enjoys freedom from the imposition of values that conflict with his or her personal definitions of those terms. Our present culture holds a philosophy where every individual deserves unimpeded access to their own personal version of truth. Our culture and media considers Christians to be in violation of that moral code because we as believers make absolute truth claims and promote those truth claims in contradistinction to the culture of today. Yet the self-proclaimed enlightenment of modern culture fails to understand that Christianity is the source of nearly all the tenets that they hold dear. When Christianity is disconnected from those high ideals, it enables this grand irony, and Morgan defines it this way, using society's claim to hold the high moral ground as justification for rampant immorality. 
claiming to be moral, I act in an immoral fashion. So in the name of equity and rights, the only sinners are those who criticize somebody else's morality. In other words, the only moral code is that there is no moral code outside from my moral code. If you don't adopt the premise that there's no moral foundation, you risk being, and this is a new word in our culture in the last couple of years, canceled. You can be canceled in culture. Okay? The implications are clear. I own my own body. I can do whatever I want with it, claim it is something it is not. I can claim to be a victim of practically anything I don't like, and I have the power to publicly vilify the one who offends me, and I am perfectly justified to do so. Modern society has turned everything on its head. Good is bad, bad is good. Isaiah, some 2,800 years ago, warned about this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So to ease our conscience, we rid society of the idea of depravity and and of sin, and the wrath of God certainly directed at that. Even in the church, I know you're going to find it's hard to believe, but sermons on sin and total depravity are not on the high-requested list, okay? We like the stuff that we feel better about. I mean, John 3.16, who doesn't like John 3.16? But ironically, not believing in the wrath of God leads you to believing in a God who is not loving, who is not loving. Romans chapter 1, two things in particular. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, what they're saying here, we go back to the very first things that I I talked about. The three little words. They can strike fear or joy into your heart. And you can say, well, they they really don't mean much to me, Rand. Yes, and the reason why is because of what is laid out here for us in Romans 18, 19, and 20. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. So those who um, uh, lack a God-centeredness in our thinking, our believing, our living, our attitudes, our priorities, and our actions. We have contempt for God's law because we don't think about God very much. Paul is indicating that these are things of rebellion against God and rebellion against his word. In fact, he characterizes mankind as those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You cannot suppress what you don't know. He said, you know it. You just don't like it, and you are suppressing the truth. Paul is saying is that no one is ignorant of this truth. What's the truth? He is risen. That's why the empty tomb is so frightening. Even if we publicly don't admit to the reality of those three words, he is risen, everybody knows the truth, even though we work hard not to, Because God has made those things plain to us in his creation. Paul says we suppress the truth. We know the difference between right and wrong. And we see the wrath of God being revealed, yet we don't flee to Christ. We don't flee to God. They don't embrace the gospel. In fact, they put away the gospel and they create God in their own image. I like a God that likes what I like and doesn't like what I like. Okay? Oh, That's me. I'm my God. That's the danger. Look at verse 19. 
God's wrath is justified for what can be known about God's plan to them because God has shown it to them. It's clear. God has made it, made it known to us. If we take this to its logical conclusion, for what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them, there are no agnostics and there are no atheists. Because God has made it plain he exists, that he is real. Now, we might say in our minds, no, there's just not enough evidence. Bertrand Russell, on his, uh, as he was getting close to death, a, a philosopher, atheist philosopher, although he wasn't really an atheist, I just said, uh, said, what happens if you die and you see God? What are you going to say to him? Bertrand Russell said, I'm going to look him in the eye and say there just wasn't enough proof. Just wasn't enough evidence you were real. And Paul is saying, everybody knows he's real. It says it right here. Everybody does. They all know about the existence of God. Now, they may not know about Jesus Christ, because that's the call upon every believer, to take the gospel into the world and make disciples. They know about God. You look into the world. You look at the trees and the grass and the complexity of the world. Look at the complexity of the human body. Does God exist? Paul says, yes. It's plainly seen. How do you know about Jesus Christ? Someone has to come and tell you about Jesus Christ. Verse 20, Paul continues. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You can see some of who God is, these attributes that are listed here in the created world. And he says, because you can see those things, you're without excuse. Now, what does that word mean, without excuse? That's a legal term from the first century. The Greek word, single word translated without excuse, unapologia. So if you were accused of a crime, you were called in front of a judge, and the judge would say, what's your defense? And if you didn't have a defense, you were listed as unapologia. You have no excuse. You have no excuse. We have nothing to say for ourselves. No argument can be made that our unbelief, about our unbelief on the day we stand before the Lord, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the law has been written on our hearts, yet we pursue unrighteousness. There's rebellion against God, And all those who do not receive Christ as their Lord and Savior are without excuse. Philip Yancey, the modern-day writer, says, There are only two types of people in the world, sinners who admit it and sinners who don't admit it. Yeah. All right, Rand. Enough of that. Enough of the fear that those three words should strike in our hearts. Hearts of everyone, he is risen. Do I believe it or not? There's no excuse for you not believing it. What about for those of us that... These three words bring great joy to our lives. Christianity hinges on the resurrection. There's no resurrection. We are just gathering to eat. Okay? That's it. But the resurrection brings life, and it brings life eternal. If Christ came out of the grave, he will come back and get the rest of those who belong to him. He is risen. That's what Christianity hinges on. If there's no resurrection of Christ, there's no resurrection for us. That means no justification, no forgiveness of sin, no purpose in this life. We are simply a random convergence of innate particles that have come together and somehow formed life. Life is complex as this. Somehow in those random convergence of innate particles, 
Coming together, we are to find meaning. We are to find hope in those things. When we inevitably die, that's, that's the end, if that's what you believe. But thankfully, he is risen. Okay, He is risen. That gives meaning to everything in life and in death. I remind you what the Heidelberg Catechism says. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live with him. When we review the historic evidence, writers such as Josephus, who was a Jewish captive of of the Romans who wrote this great history, when we look at the biblical prophecies from the early service, Dan had such a great illustration of the chance that Jesus happened to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament. You ask him about it, coins covering the state of Texas, finding one coin in that two feet deep. It's a great illustration about the absurdity that unless it was designed by God, there is no way that Jesus could have fulfilled all the prophecies, which he did. We see those prophecies in wide-reaching books as far as Job, the Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Daniel. We see the testimony of the witnesses in the first century, the willingness of the apostles to go to their deaths because they would not... They would not give up on the fact that Jesus had risen from the grave. Paul gives a proof in 1 Corinthians 15. He catalogs all the evidence of the witnesses. He called the witnesses. He begins with Peter. He moves on to the larger circle of the disciples. More than 500 witnesses of the resurrected Christ, some of whom are still alive when Paul is writing that. He then speaks of James, the other apostles, and finally of his own witness of the risen Christ. He gives an extensive list of these to remind us of how many people could corroborate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament gives 17 or 18 independent witnesses and verification to the resurrection of Christ. Many of you will remember the name Chuck Colson from Watergate fame, founder of Prison Fellowship. He came to Christ when he was in prison because of the laws that he broke during the Watergate era. He wrote this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me, because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, when, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it, every one of them, beaten, tortured, stoned, put into prison, all but one put to death. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. And that's the truth. Paul says, this is why the good news is so good. You know, I deserve condemnation. I deserve eternal death. But God, in his 
goodness, in his love for us, in his grace and his mercy, has saved me through the righteousness of Christ and all who receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. He is risen, and all I need to do is trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. God will take me from an enemy to his child. So which is it for you today? Do those words, he is risen, do they scare the bejeebers out of you? Or do they give you great joy? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this word, these three little words. He is risen. They have eternal consequences. They have consequences that are personal for each of us. We know these things are true. You've implanted them in our hearts. We pray today that you would open our eyes and call us by name. Draw us unto yourself that we may have these truths as our own. That we might know that Jesus Christ came out of the grave. And now my life is to be devoted to him. To all he has for me. To all he calls me to do. To all he empowers me to do. Lord, that our lives might be lived to the praise and glory of the Son and of the Father and of the Holy Spirit until the day when you send the Son back to collect those who are his, that we too will come out of the grave with bodies fit for all eternity before you. Lord, we thank you for this truth that you have written upon our hearts, that you have made known to us in all of creation, that is revealed to us in your word. He is risen. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.